<clears throat> so I appreciate the new faces since I've given the last talk, but it's also a little uh, disconcerting because the, these talks are sort of built on each other and I've given four out of the five in this cumulative manner. <clears throat> so if it feels confusing to you, uh, somewhere there are the other four talks lurking and you're welcome to uh, join in and listen. Uh, if this feels um, a little remote to you, uh, then just listening, just allowing yourself to listen to it. I won't say anything wrong. <laughs> so you could just kind of... But I do want to encourage people uh, to stretch, as I usually say and suggest, uh, within this perception that I'm suggesting, which may be a very different perception than how you have envisioned the four foundations. <clears throat> I, uh, I try to look at things not from the 2,500 years of editorializing that's gone on, but rather from a fresh perspective. What, what, does, what, what feeds me? What speaks to me directly? <clears throat> and so I've made these four foundations sort of into my own description of how I would like to have been talked to by the Buddha <laughs> as, as he was guiding my uh, practice. And I've talked about the four foundations, and tonight I want to briefly review that, but more importantly, give some guiding applications uh, to these foundations so that we have something, have a workable way to move this thing forward. <clears throat> but I want to start by uh, noting that many of you are leaving at the end of this month, and to just say how much I have appreciated the time together with you. Uh, and also, because I've gotten to know some of you uh, throughout the month, I know that some of you have a tendency not to stay within yourself. <clears throat> if there's one guiding principle to practice, and perhaps the most fundamental and basic principle of all practice, it's to do just that. And yet our tendency is, is to uh, not trust our own uh, our own course, our own um, movement, or the speed of our own movement, and to try to uh, obtain or try to move or try to lean into the Dharma in a way that it's not useful. So I was trying to think of an analogy that might bring us back within ourselves, and uh, a poor one, but the only one I could think of in the time I had was we we're all taking a voyage individually on individual ships. But let us say for the sake of the adventure, we join Ferdinand Magellan on his trip around the world in 1622. I didn't look any of this up, you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so this Portuguese sailor uh, who's, uh, who's deciding he's going to sail around the world, right? So the, the sense that there's some vision as to what he's doing out on his, his boat and the preparation needed to make this thing worthy of all kinds of weather and, and, uh, to, and the provisions necessary, storage, and to, to take a prolonged journey. And uh, each of us uh, have our own sense of that. We join this voyage within our own 
disposition within our own floatage or in our own vessel. Uh, and we want to get out there in the water, experience the adventure. But unless you do the preparation work back on land, sealing the hull and storing the provisions, you get out on the water and you find a lot of leaks, you're going to have to turn right around and come back home and do the care necessary to take care of those in advance. So that's really analogous to how some of us try to lean into our practice, to try to get it somewhere where it's not. And this, this is uh, not a powerboat, Ron, by any means. It's, it's a, a sailboat. And uh, it's the winds that blow us. The, it's the natural winds that blow us across this ocean that we are traveling. And for us to have some sense that all we do is uh, we can steer it towards where we want to go, which is around the world. And it's important to know where we're going to go, or you'll get in the middle of the Atlantic and decide that you're going to have a fishing trip instead. And then the whole trip will have a very different value and determined uh, determination than if you keep uh, the, the view of the trip at hand. And it's very important to do that. I can't overemphasize that. That's the reason I talk from the extension that I do, is that I want your view to extend beyond wherever it is that you have conceded and wherever it is that you have landed. I want to extend it beyond that. There's a forever in this. And uh, unless you hear that forever, almost daily, pretty soon you're out in the middle of the Atlantic just fishing, forgetting all about the trip around the world and not really remembering what you were even doing out there except loving the tuna that happened to be passing your boat. <laughs> so let's... Staying within ourselves is staying, staying within, you know, okay, so right now there might be a lot of psychological stuff that's arising, which feels like preparation work, but it's not really. This voyage has no such thing as preparation. The first step you take is, the, is as important as any other. And sealing the leaks within our psyche, where we leak out of ourselves are is a very important step all along the way, but certainly early on, where we shore up the captain of this boat and have a sense of oneself and what one can handle, their value and the limitations of ourselves, and to know and being able to say and set limits with our, all of that. And it's very underrepresented, I think. Uh, and it's what originally in the East, that was what uh, Sila and um, Donna were meant to do. They were meant to, to shore up the sense of, of being so that the journey could even be undertaken. Okay, so uh, we've got the vessel in proper order and we're going around the world. Okay, so that's where, we're, that's where I want to keep our focused attention. And uh, it's I want to f start out with this thing by taking something to its logical conclusion, which I don't think we do often enough. All of us know that the, that the journey has to do with non-interference, right? I mean, very basically, 
we understand that in every uh, authentic instruction that we've ever had, and probably most of the interviews, the teacher is having you lay off yourself, pull back from any more uh, pushing and shoving and, and aversive and reactive responses. Just simply don't interfere with yourself. Just leave yourself alone. This thing has its own sailing mechanism. And the more you try to steer it, the more out of whack it becomes. And so this sense of non-interference is at the basis of our practice, but we do that from a very limited perspective. We, why would we, we really don't understand in its depth why this thing has to be not interfered with. <clears throat> we think it has something to do with being able to see clearly. We think it has something to do with uh, being with things as they are, all the jargon, spiritual jargon, but what, what is it in deep principle why is non-interference essential? Well, when you start seeing, seeing whatever it is that's arising, and you bring the self into what you're seeing through your opinions or through your uh, uh, objections or views or whatever it is, whatever you bring to that seeing, you're interfering with that seeing. So you're bringing yourself into the experience of what's being seen. The less you interfere, the less involved you are within that seeing. The less of you is there. So really non-interference in its heart is to eliminate you from the picture of what's being seen. So fair enough. I think some of us get a sense of that. But what is this? Now let's take it. You see, let's take it to its logical conclusion, right? Because somehow we'll do that, we'll do the practice of non-interference, but we'll keep a film of ourselves in place all along the way. Somehow the non-interference doesn't address the film of me. It's supposed to be addressing what I see, but not the seer of what I see. And so there's some way in which, even though I'm constantly trying to limit my influence, the sense of me is still very much a part of what's being seen. So now we have to take this thing and stretch it out some. Okay. Essential to the practice is anatta. No one there. What we have taken ourselves to be is an image, is a representation, is an idea of someone doing it. And it arises from the reactions that we have to what we're seeing. So the sense of me arises simultaneously to what is being seen when I want something from what is being seen or I don't want something from what is being seen. That's how the sense of I arise. But no matter whether we arise or not, the system is without us in essence as an entity, as something that's convincingly there, it doesn't have that. Okay, then what makes this thing run? Huh? What moves it forward? If it's not you, 
And don't even go back there. This is, this is a certainty, not only from all spiritual awakening and mystical experience, but also in science itself. So what is it? What is it that moves this thing forward? You see the question? That's where you, and now you're getting a sense of how much you're involved in your practice because even though you may have experienced selflessness and have understood it philosophically, still the residue of you is persistently involved in your practice, are you not? Now, if we take it to its logical conclusion, the more you get out of the way, the more naturally fulfilled it will become. And I mean completely out of the way. Not in some tangential sense of you just not having the same quality of opinion you used to, that you're more serene, more serene self, a quieter self, but I mean completely uprooting that. So what is it then that's moving this thing? Life is moving it. Life. It's so beautiful to see the symmetry, the complete symmetry of how this comes back in. It's life coming back in to itself. Life finding and rediscovering itself and pulling it from the darkness of its own ignorance. And so it has a natural unfolding. It has a rhythm. It has, it has a very organic and unique pace. And as soon as we get involved trying to swim ahead of the vehicle, of the boat, or trying to pull the boat along by swimming in front of it, we wreck that natural evolutionary movement, which will take care of itself if we simply take care of what's at hand within us. So this sense of releasing ourselves to this complete, even if it hasn't been realized, even if there's still, and quite likely on almost all of us there is, a residual sense of not having completely realized selflessness, it doesn't matter. Leave yourself alone anyway, because that's the winds. That's allowing the wind through to fill the sail. And the boat is guided in that way. And just a very simple example of that, which I tried to communicate in another talk, but it didn't come out in quite the right way. So let me try again. When you are on your breath, just this is just the simplest of examples. When we are on our breath, and we suddenly are not on our breath because a thought comes by and we lose ourselves within that thought. Most of us did not seek to be lost in that thought. We just get whisked away, right? But we certainly blame ourselves for it. Now, when we come back and we reawaken out of that thought, we didn't reawaken ourselves out of that thought. We discover that fact after it's already occurred. And we didn't even have a handle in our awakening, let alone our sleeping, going to sleep. Neither side of that equation was self-induced. That's how completely empty this process is. We don't put ourselves to sleep, and we don't wake ourselves up. We just notice the fact after and before it occurs. 
And the more we concede the point that this has its own time, its own rhythm, its life coming back on itself and relaxing within that unfolding. And part of the way life uses us as form in a beautiful symmetry is through a very balanced effort at particular times. But it doesn't look ambitious, and it doesn't look goal-oriented. It looks like, oh, that's the, that's the thing to do. That's the right thing to do. It feels like the message of the heart is playing through even the form of effort until that is seen through as well. The boat is self-guiding. And what is the mechanism in body and mind that allows that path around the world to continue rather than to stop in the middle of the Atlantic? Again, this is coming from life, but it can be felt in body. And that is our intention, what we want from life. Life is going to move us in the direction of our want. What we, what we want from it. And if we want to play and frolic in the pleasures of our mind, that's where we go. It will present that for us as well. It's not in any hurry whatsoever to move us around the world. There's no pressure here. Why, how could it be? The whole thing is based in love. And it will let us stay, as long as we want, tuna fishing, if that's what we so wish. Now I'm going to bring in the four foundations. Okay, The Buddha laid out a way. First he showed us the trip that we were taking, which isn't very recognizable from most of the traditional teachings. Most of us have our foundation of self, and we just operate from Atapatana Sutta. <laughs> the sense of me as the foundation. We don't even question the sense of me. We don't even, we just suppose that's true and move on. We look ahead. It's like that's where we are, and let me just, we don't, until we will, are willing to question the sense of I, that I stays pretty much the captain of the boat. So what the Buddha seems to me to be trying to do is to move us from a foundation on which the sense of self is the holder and captain to a sati foundation, a sound foundation within awareness, a formlessness, a formlessness. So he's moving us from form of me to formlessness. And he has four stages in which he does that. The stages are the stages towards a complete unfolding of the formless. Okay, so let's just look at them for a moment and then we'll get to some of the application. 
the first one, and they're very, I just want to say them very briefly. The first one is that he lands us within the most personalized form that we know of, which is the body. And he has us explore it. He has us inquire into it. He doesn't have us take it as fact. He has us undermine the very fact we have taken it to be. He undermines the foundation of I within that fact by first examining that fact to see if if the form is what we have always thought it to be, this solid, imagined thing called body. And as we begin to explore it, there's a, a natural inquisitiveness that comes because we see that the visual tones of a boundary are not really what the experiential, the, the experience realizes. The experience is not the same as the visual. And he suggests that we do this, this exploration without knowledge and remembrance of not constantly bringing forth the old past relationships I have with the body as this new exploration takes, takes and moves forth. Now, the second one is very interesting. He wants to know, he's suggesting, okay, in the second foundation, he's suggesting how does the formless become form? How do we, how does this form arise from formlessness, from the foundation of awareness? How does this, how, how does this sense of personhood come into being? What's the mechanism? You see, it's, it's actually very beautiful to see it in this light. I say, oh, I say, okay, so now we're seeing how we bring ourselves into form where we can claim a body and rest in assurance of the personalization within that form. So he says, okay, you have the body, Explore it, see what, if it's what you think it to be. Now explore it without those thoughts of what you know it to be. And you'll find the edges becoming blurred and much more ephemeral. And he says, okay, so now you're moving that solid thing called form into the formlessness, the formless dissipation of its allowing to be what it is. Now, but there's still a sense of a body, me, within body. We're, we're just playing on the outskirts of this fascinating discovery of formlessness. So now let's see how formlessness becomes form. Let's see the mechanism. What's the way the mind tricks itself into believing what is, where there's nothing, that there's something? Right? So it does that through the memory of feeling of something being pleasant and then the rush experience of the tides of our narrative being tied to that particular feeling and then of course the recognition of what that thing is that we're pursuing and then the flood of the memory associated with that. So it has its whole system on which nothing becomes something. And from this second foundation, we can say, oh, it's nothing. And yet, it's also something when the mind 
invests in, it becomes something. And we can see that. We can see that right in front. We can see it becoming right in front of our eyes. And then the third foundation, he says, okay, so now we've got ourselves so that we know what objects are. We know where the investment comes from in those objects. It comes from me and the feeling I give them. We know how we've made form out of the formless. We've made nothing, something out of nothing. Now let's just back away. Let's take the sense of self completely out of this equation and not interfere. Non-interference is the third foundation. Non-interference. Don't object to anything that goes on. You're concentrated, fine. You're not concentrated, fine. You're having a spectacular sitting, fine. You're having an awful sitting, fine. Stay out of it. Don't interfere. Why is he doing that? Because that's the essence. That's the, that's the way that life looks from formlessness. Just expressions. Just the arising. Just the knowing. But within this third foundation, there's still a residue, a residual sense of me seeing a film of self, seeing things arise, even though it's a very quiet sense of me. And many of us experience it like I'm me, and now I'm feeling total presence. Now I'm back to being me. Now I'm feeling totally present again in this kind of back and forth. This is a very precious time of practice because you can over-interfere and forget the Buddha's third foundation by over-interfering, creating all kinds of havoc for yourself and spinning yourself around and heading back towards Portugal. (laughs) Very easily. And that's probably the most obvious place that you can lose your rudder. Because it's so tempting to want to interfere when you are someone. Because you've experienced what it's like to be no one, to be presence. And you can't stand it. And there's a, like a thorn in your side and you can't take it out. And so you just want to, you want to get back to, and that polarity of where you're inviting more of your effort to try to move the boat to the south as opposed to it drifting to the north will keep it forever in that polarity of self and not self and self and not self. And all, all you need is one polarity for the whole world to be polarized. Okay, so now let's move. We're trying to move, I'm moving this quickly through the, just to bring people who haven't been here in these four talks up to date and just to review for people who have. The fourth foundation is now we're t- the perspective of seeing rather than the perspective of what is being seen. Right now we're in the formless, seeing form arising within it. But the formless now, we are now satipatthana oriented. We are now found, our foundation is now in awareness, no longer in self. For the first three, it was phased out. The sense of self was phased out as the Atapatana Sutta. It's now become the Satipatana Sutta because the basis 
of observation is in formlessness. The scene itself is recognized. And that which is seen is being held by the scene, but is not being in any way, it does not affect the seeing in any way whatsoever. Now, why does the fourth foundation spend so much time talking about the hindrances and the seven this is and the because how are you going to describe seeing except by seeing what comes into seeing, by see, looking at the content of what comes in? So this sense of seeing also gets drawn back out of itself. If a hindrance comes, which isn't completely understood, we come back into form. And so we have to be aware of what draws the formless back into form, and that becomes the work that we do within the fourth foundation, is to see where we get caught up still in the belief of form so that we can regain a footing back into the formless. Okay, so now I want to move on to, in the 15 minutes left, (laughs) I'm a winded guy, is talking about the actual application of this. You see, you begin to see why we need to carry just certain principles with us to remind us what's going on here, where, how we're moving. This is not dependent upon environment. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon whether it's noisy or quiet or anything of that sort whatsoever. There is a way, something that is provided in this that can cue us in the midst of turbulence, which is a very important ally in reestablishing this march through the four foundations that I'll get to in a moment. But let's look at the nature of awareness itself. The nature of awareness provides the mechanism, provides the application for sustaining ourselves within the formless. If we look at the nature of awareness, we will see that it is discerning. It is discerning. There's an intelligence to awareness that, for some reason or other, never seems to be mentioned in this tradition, but is so obvious, I don't know why it isn't. It's not my intelligence or your intelligence, but basic intelligence. You can feel it. It's alive. It's vital. And that intelligence has two aspects to it, that discerning. The first is the passive discernment. Passive discernment is very similar to the third foundation where it just sees, just just sees what's resting, what's coming. There's just a knowing of what's, what's happening. Not too much to say about it. It's a very clear knowing because there aren't any thoughts that contaminate it. It's a very distinct uh, and very, very clear and a very, uh, very alive seeing. So that's the passive discernment. Now there's an active discernment. That active discernment 
is best described as the ability to question, to look at, to, 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 uh, to, to go deeper into. The passive discernment, just the presence, just the ability to be present, is so beautifully still, it's so wonderfully alive, that it's just, it, it just, there's just this uh, deep sense of contentment and joy that comes from that. And one would love to just stay, saying one doesn't, I don't know how to frame it so that it doesn't hold a sense of person, but this, it would just like to stay there. Unfortunately, for most of us, there is a residual tendencies to still come into form. The old karmic tendencies to reform ourselves within our subtle likes and dislikes, and believe me, they can be very subtle, continues to arise in consciousness. And just presence isn't sufficient to uncover or unlock the code of why that is that form is still bringing us out. So the art of questioning, to bring forth a question, is a beautiful, uh, is a beautiful attribute of this formlessness. Now, you say, well, sometimes you know, sometimes you question from form. Form, for, the question comes from a kind of thought about something. Yes, that's why, this is, that's why the symmetry between form and formlessness. Formlessness uses form. It goes in, it uses the, what it doesn't have, which is the ability to clearly see and use thought to move deeply into the recesses of where it in itself can't go without thought. So it plays forth with thought. It uses form, which feels like, from the form side of things, interest, curiosity, exhilaration, joy at, at the highest level. There's nothing more pleasurable than seeing oneself at this level of understanding. And hopefully all of you have experienced the true joy of that form participating in its own journey. It doesn't do it for a reason. There's no quid pro quo in questioning. It's simply moving in and flushing out the details. So that what does this look like? Is the, you know, what is, in fact, how it forms the question is of utmost importance. Questions of how, how do I do this? Those are questions labored within the density of self. How do I do this? I need time, I need experience, I need all the quality, I need the skills, I don't have any though, I don't feel like I have them. How do I get those? Where do I go? They're giving authority away. They're taking the preciousness of the opportunity and putting it on a timeline, and it just flattens out into a, into a, 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 a path of destruction, really. 
So questions of how, which are really questions of, of, of self-doubt. I don't know. I don't, they're questions of, of not being um, in ourself fully. They're questions of, please tell me how to navigate this boat across the river. You're not in control of the boat. So the question stops there. This is, you're not in control of this thing. We have already taken this thing logically to its conclusion. Now let us follow that and not pretend that we are by doubting ourselves. By doubting ourselves simply brings us back into the control. Really doesn't even bring us back into control. It brings in another authority as the captain. And we just give over our control to that. Now this is one, Westerners, that we have to, we have to see. It stops us in the water. Now think about it. Our culture has induced a doubt in us that is treacherous. You can't want to be a consumer and want things if you feel content with what you have. It has to stimulate insufficiency in you in order for you to want. So it does that. It does that through competition and evaluation and comparison. And so all through school and all through our billboard and advertising life, we have learned not to trust our own sense of adequacy. This is very deeply ingrained in us, much more so than in the East. And so when we come to this part of our spiritual journey, we don't know how to ask questions because we don't trust ourselves well enough to be able to even think that the answer could come from us. This is truly devastating. I don't think there's a deeper trap, a deeper setback than this one. But let me just give you a first foundation reference here. How can you doubt where you are? Start there. Well, I shouldn't be here, or maybe this is, you know. No, that's your mind. Where your body is, that's it. That's a fact. That's an undisputed fact. It can't be somewhere else. Take that fact and build your stability of presence around it. You owe no one an apology for where you are. No excuses for being where you are. Build upon that fact of the certainty of body so that your mind does not waver. And do not listen to the minds wavering within that fact of certainty. This is true, period. Now bring that certainty into your question. What's going on here? What is this? Now the how questions, which were forced and stimulated by our self-doubt become what questions, which are firmly placed, rooted in the earth. What is this? To take on that question is a different sense of resolve within us. What's going on here? And now the heart can, the formlessness can use the form, pursuing itself along the what questions or the who questions? 
but not along the how questions. It loses its embodiment. It loses its power over form when the form takes all the power and reasserts itself back into a sense of self who's in doubt. There's no, it's a cutoff. There's no way that the formless can get in us. But in a what question, the formless is playing through the form in a beautiful array, beautiful array. And this is something we can take out. This is not, which should meet the criteria, it's not about place, it's not about time, it's not about circumstances. Questions can arise any time in the thick of the most tumultuous life. I can ask, what's going on here? And that is the method that is free of conditions. What's going on here? I believe it can be asked right up and through death. We can stay interested in the evolutionary product of our own demise. So to ask these questions, when something seems troubling, when something comes up which, is, which feels unconscious, the what is going on here brings it from the backside where I don't see it, have no sense of it whatsoever, and puts it right on my lap to be seen, to be understood. And let us be clear that questions, all questions do is allow an understanding to unfold. It's the understanding, it's the wisdom that makes something that we thought was something turn back into nothing. The form that we were caught on, that we were tripped over, now becomes, turns back into the formless. You see the scale, what we have gone from form to formless, it really hasn't been transcendence, it's been alchemy. Form was never anything other than the formless. Steam and ice are one and the same. So too are form and formlessness one and the same. And so what we've, all, what we've done is just been willing to stop infusing formlessness with criteria which makes it form. With wants, desires, objections, experience, images, mental overlay. That's what made it something. So when we see that and arrest any further movement to make something more than what it is, we just stop there. That's it. We just stop. We suspend further investment. And it transforms itself through alchemy. All things are a single essence, said the Buddha. All things are a single essence. How could it be not so?
feel it. Your heart, our hearts reside in it. We know that. Now let's just remember that we're going around the world and not deep sea fishing. <laughs> and we'll be safely, safely drifting towards that end. Okay, all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.